Galatians chapter 2 at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. It is great to see you. Really glad you're here, especially if you're new. We look forward to getting to know you. We have been in this series on Galatians, and this morning we are looking at how the gospel brings about unity between different people. And uh, there was an article that I read last year in the New York Times that really stuck with me. The title of it was, Loneliness is Breaking America. And brilliant title. The the journalist, Michelle Goldberg, she tracked all of these uh, people who were were really closely following the 2020 presidential election. So during the election cycle between uh, Biden and Trump, there were these people that were all in consumed with one party or the other. And so like political enthusiasm is, is nothing new, but she described these folks as like rock and roll groupies. Like they were going city to city with their candidate, like doing, I mean, had given up everything to just travel with these groups for months at a time And they were just absolutely committed to the cause. And that was true on both sides in a way that she said was unprecedented. And so she interviewed all of these people from both sides and was trying to find what's the common denominator between these people that are so radically committed to one side or the other. And her answer was prior loneliness. What she found was that the people who were most committed, these like political groupies, they often had been estranged from their families. Most of them had few friends to speak of. A lot of them had 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 decades-long relationships ended because of their political views and being held the way that they were. And so these were basically the loneliest people in America latching on to one party or another and then becoming even more extreme as they moved in that direction. Now, of course, you already know this, that we are living in divided times. And the last few years has brought an increase in division and disunity in America. You know, issues like politics and gender and race and the economy, these aren't just topics that we, you know, civilly discuss, but these are like terms that we go to war over. These are communities that we're trying to advance or identities that we are trying to defend with our lives. 
And so what's happened is that people have become so committed to their social and political positions that they've lost these decades-long relationships, family members, friends, and instead they've replaced those relationships with with what's called affinity-based relationships. So relationships with people who totally agree with them across the board and often just share the same enemy as them. This has also been a shift from local, like real life in the flesh relationships to virtual disconnected, you know, disembodied relationships. And so this is sort of the the cultural change that we've been seeing and people are more isolated. There are more fringe views. And there's a journalist named David French that said, the prime reason you can't fact check, plead or argue a person out of a conspiracy is because you're trying to fact check, plead and argue them out of their community. And so what's happened is no longer just sort of a a passive loneliness where people don't have many friends or people they spend time with. It's actually a, a divisive loneliness where people have cast off all other relationships except where they are in 100% total agreement with others. We're living in a, a sort of cold civil war. And as a pastor in New York City, John Tyson has said, it's hard to build society for the common good when most people's framework is selfishness and suspicion of the other. Now, it is impossible to dwell in a culture like this and not be affected by it. And it feels almost impossible to to establish a congregation in a culture of selfishness and suspicion without being changed by it. Now, thankfully, this is actually nothing new. I mean, the, the, the division is unprecedented in our country, And yet really the core issues, the heart of the matter can be traced back throughout all time. Now, the letter of Galatians that we've been studying actually is written into a somewhat similar context. There's social and cultural division within this church in Galatia. There's a key social issue that's dividing them. People are taking sides. There's people from the outside that are trying to sort of, you know, force their will and steal people away from the community. And Paul the apostle is is writing into this context, urging them to hold to the gospel, keep the unity that they have, promote love for one another. And so that's what our passage is all about this morning. There's going to be three things that we're looking at. The problem of disunity, the power of justification by faith, and then the hope of a unified community. So the problem of disunity, the power of justification by faith, and the hope of a unified community. So the first thing we're going to look at is the the problem, the disunity. It says in verse 11, when Cephas, which is Peter, Cephas is his Greek name, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, unity is this constant theme throughout the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul and especially in the book of Galatians. Unity is so, so critical to the message of the New Testament. And we've, we've met these young believers in Galatia. They're being persecuted by Hebrew religious leaders. They're living in a secular society. I mean, they are caught in a difficult place, but they're becoming fragmented in their relationships. They're at risk, Paul says, of losing the very gospel itself 
because now they're putting things on top of it. They're putting their cultural preferences and things on top of the gospel. And as we saw in the first week, if you add anything to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. And we're talking now about that core message of Christianity, that message that we are saved totally by the grace of God, by responding in faith to what he's done for us in Christ. They're at risk of losing the core of Christianity. And so Paul comes in, you know, fairly hot once again, and he's, he's rebuking people, but not because they're not doing a good enough job or they're not being religious enough or they're not trying hard enough, but he's actually rebuking them because they're being too religious. They're trying too hard. They're adding extra things to the gospel. They're not living in the grace of Christ, as it says in chapter one. He says the call is to embrace anybody who is in Christ, regardless of their cultural or ethnic background. And so there's clarity that comes around the gospel and it comes in response to the disunity that's existing in this situation. And so you, you heard the passage, but Paul returns to Jerusalem to visit the other believers and he, he finds that Peter and the other apostles are doing the very thing they had said was wrong to do, which was to separate themselves from the Gentiles. If you read Acts chapter 10, Peter gets this incredible, I mean, crystal clear vision that the Christians, whether they're from a Jewish background or not, are now to be able to eat with all people. I mean, it's this powerful vision. And then you see in Acts chapter 11, all the believers are sharing a meal together. And this is so significant because in the Old Testament, under the old covenant, the Israelites were to be distinct and separate from the Gentiles. They weren't supposed to eat together. They weren't supposed to, to, to do life together. Israel was to withdraw and be a separate nation, even though there was a promise coming that all nations would come together. In Acts 10, in the new covenant, after the resurrection of Christ, all of that is set aside and Christians are to be one regardless of their background. And that's why Paul uses the word hypocrite. One of, the, one of the strongest words in all of the New Testament. He says that they're hypocrites because they're declaring all people equal theologically, and yet they're not living like it practically. They're saying one thing and doing something else. And they're doing it, Paul says, out of fear. They're worried about what other people think of them. They're worried about extra conflict. And so they're acting out of fear and it's hypocrisy. Verse 13 says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, speaking of Peter, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And if you know Paul, like Barnabas was his boy, he's guy, he's like not Barnabas. They even got Barnabas and poor Barnabas, you know, he probably like had his little lunch train. He's like, do I sit at this table? Do I say, I guess I'll just sit at this table. And now for 2000 years of New Testament history, Paul has put him on blast. You know, it's like, never forget it. It's savage. At the heart of this issue, there is spiritual and racial pride. This pride has replaced love at the center of relationships in the church. And it is the most dangerous thing in a Christian community. When people begin to look down on each other because of our, our human differences or our cultural differences, appearing to be holy and yet mistreating others at the same time, division within the family caused by pride and prejudice. And Paul sees that this problem, it's, it's not just rudeness. 
It's not just being inhospitable. But he's actually going to say it is, a, it is a profound offense against the gospel. It says in verse 14, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And so simply by not eating together, although that seems so, so small in one sense, Paul is saying this is directly opposing the gospel of grace. And his sin, Peter's sin and the others, their hypocrisy, it was a great tragedy. When in Jerusalem, Peter represented the, the dominant cultural group. He was one of the power holders, the insiders. He had an opportunity to elevate those from a lower status, but he didn't. He did, he did nothing. Worse than that, he, he reverted back to his pre-Christ self and held his cultural preferences above others. Now, sadly, this has so often been the case in Christianity. Those with social status and power being unwilling to live in line with the gospel and treat other people equally. I'm thinking, of course, as a white Christian of white Christians' participation in slavery or in supporting segregation in the 20th century, even now often voluntarily segregating their lives, not interacting with people unlike them. The New Testament says that is hypocrisy. An important question for those of us who are sort of majority culture. Of course, as Christians, we wouldn't refuse to eat with somebody who's unlike us. But the question is, how often do we actually do that? Of course, we would never say you're from another race, you're from another neighborhood, you've got a different background, you're a different social status, I'm not going to eat with you. We would never say that. But when we look at our lives day in and day out, are they marked by this New Testament type of unity? And Paul says, unity in the church is a gospel issue. We who believe in Christ have been joined to him, not because of anything we've done, not because of our background, not because we've, we've worked it up in ourselves with all of our goodness somehow, but simply because the grace of God has been poured out on us. Simply because we've, we've responded by faith. And even that's not an impressive thing. Literally responding in faith is like, I've done nothing really good. I've done nothing to, to receive this or earn this. And so I, I pray for help and forgiveness and I receive your life for me, Jesus. Like even the response of faith is an act of lowliness and humility. And yet by faith, we receive life with God. By faith, we are given the Holy Spirit. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. And although we retain our cultural distinctives, we are new creations. Tim Keller writes, an American Christian has far more in common with a gospel believer who lives a nomadic existence on the Mongolian plains than they do with a non-believer who lives on their street drives a similar car, and whose children go to the same school as theirs. And so Christian unity is not contingent on cultural similarity. And yet our, our backgrounds, our interests, our, our preferences, they're so, so strong. And so where, where in the world are we going to find the power to, to overcome this? And that's exactly where Paul goes next. He says, there is no power in the world that's going to let us be united despite all of our differences. We need an, an otherworldly power. 
And that's where, for the first time, he describes what justification by faith is. And so that's the second thing. Verse 16, one of the most important verses in the entire New Testament. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so this is Paul's sort of nutshell summary of the entire gospel, right? At the heart of it is this message that we call justification by faith. Now, I know that's a a big term, especially if you're new to the church. It's hyper-theological. But what it means, justification simply means being being declared right, being being declared good, to to be in right standing with God. We are made right with God, not because of the good things we've done, but because of the good things that Jesus has done. J.I. Packer, an Anglican theologian, writes, to justify in the Bible means to declare that a man on trial is not liable to penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. And so, of course, the question is, if we have not kept the law perfectly, which nobody has, how can we be acquitted of our guilt? How can that penalty of death be removed from us? And what we see, what this means is that God, the judge, has accepted the life of Jesus in place of our lives, and he's accepted the death of Jesus in place of our death. And so because of what Christ has done in his life and his death and his resurrection, all of that is received on our behalf if, if we believe in him and are joined to him. We are given right standing immediately and completely. And so God is just in punishing sin, and yet he's merciful in not punishing us. Now, remember, all of this is, is centered on this confrontation between Paul and Peter. And what was at the heart of that confrontation was a matter of cleanliness. And so in the Old Testament, a Jew would be considered unclean if he ate with a Gentile. They would be unclean if they came too close to a leper. And so there were all these purification type regulations. There were all of these things they had to avoid, foods they had to avoid, people they had to avoid, practices that they had. The entire sacrificial system of offerings over and over and over. It was all so that they would be clean, clean before God. The greatest insult was that somebody was unclean. And so it's into this context of cleanliness and uncleanliness that Paul writes, and he's saying justification, being justified, it's about being pure and clean before God. It's about having all of your sins, all of your guilt, all of that completely washed away, not just for a little bit, and then you have to go back to the temple, back to the temple, but once and for all time, for all eternity. We are pure, we are clean, we are pardoned, we are right to stand in God's presence simply because Christ's work has been applied to us. Simply because what Jesus has done has been applied to us. This is an otherworldly power. It's a power that can raise a dead man. It's the power to bring a disunified community together again. 
Now let's pause and, and think about this for a moment because something like justification can just be merely sort of intellectual in our minds and we, we can assent to it and say, yes, we are, we are good believers. We believe in justification by faith. The question is, what does it mean? How does it, how does it change us day in and day out? What, is, what does this mean for our everyday lives? And just think about it like this, how much of our lives are spent trying to prove ourselves, trying to defend ourselves, trying to to justify ourselves in one sense or another. Think of that, the half-truths we might tell to make ourselves seem just a little bit better or, you know, really cleverly and subtly putting someone else down in conversation claiming innocence. So we don't have to take responsibility for something like, Oh, I, I don't know. You know, this is the first I'm hearing about it, you know. Uh, like if you have a child, you hear this every single day. I don't know. I wasn't there. It's not me. Why are you stealing screen time? I was going to do homework, but then YouTube was open and I just got sucked in. You know, it's like Barnabas. He's like, I just grabbed my tray. And then next thing I knew, I was, I was at this table, you know. Cain and Abel was like, where's your brother? I don't know. I, you know, why would I know? There's only two of you, you know? It's like, there was two and now there's one. He's like, I don't, I have no clue. You're asking the wrong guy. So deep. All of this is the soul's attempt to justify itself. To become right in someone else's eyes, to become clean somehow, to appear just a little bit more righteous. And then we go on judging ourselves and judging others. We can't even live up to our own standards, and yet we put those standards on other people. It's an endless loop of need, self-justification, grinding to exhaustion. I thought this week of the opening narration of the wonderful movie, Royal Tenenbaums. Hope we got any fans in the house. Virtually all memory of the brilliance of the young Tenenbaums had been erased by two decades of betrayal, failure, and disaster. Marvelous. And that's what self-justification leads to, decades of failure, betrayal, and disaster. And yet the message of grace is such a better way for us. So I think about it like this. Some mornings I, I wake up, you know, I'm, I'm, alarm goes off, and I just hop right out of bed, coffee's ready, get my Bible and journal, and I just have like an amazing quiet time. You know, I'm like searching the scriptures. I'm looking up Greek words just to say that I did later on in church. I mean, like praying for, for the nations. I'm, I'm praying for each of you by name. It's just sort of a transcendent experience. And in that moment, I am, I am loved completely and perfectly by God. The next morning, the alarm goes off. I hit it a couple times. I get up and then I want to check the scores on the ESPN app from the night before. 15 minutes later, I'm like, I forgot I was going to do a quiet time. I get my journal out, but then the kids are awake. They come running in. They want to do stuff. And so I'm like, I'm going to just at least read a psalm. So I kind of read a psalm, but I kind of run through it. In that moment, I am completely and perfectly loved by God. The next morning, I don't even get out of bed. Like I miss the entire quiet time and I just sleep through the entire day. I'm completely, and perfectly loved by God. I think about this in my own life. I mean, there are days when I feel like I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm being generally the kind of person that I want to be. I'm, I'm compassionate with my kids, that sort of thing. 
Then there are other days when I, when I feel like I just have zero patience. I mean, especially with my kids and I treat them so, so harshly. And then I feel so just awful and I feel so ashamed and I can't believe like I raised my voice again. And in that moment, I am completely and perfectly loved by God. You are as loved by God in your absolute worst moment as much as you will be in a thousand years when you are perfected and walking with him in the cool of the day. You are loved completely and perfectly. Now imagine a person who really understood this. Imagine what it would look like if somebody actually lived into this gospel moment by moment. If they were so sure of God's love for them, they were so immersed in the grace of God that it was just pouring out of them at all times. Think about the the freedom, the peace, the joy, even the, the power that they would have just encouraging other people, praying for other people. I mean, imagine what a, what a powerful life that would be. And then imagine an entire community like that. An entire community that was immersed in the love and grace of God. That's the third thing. It's the hope of a loving, unified community. Now, Paul says, remember in verse 14, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. That's actually an incredible phrase. And, and in the original, in the Greek, it's, it's basically saying they were not ortho-walking in line with the gospel. They were not ortho-walking with the gospel. So the word ortho, it's where we get the word, you know, orthodontics, which is making your teeth straight, or orthotics, where you can walk straight. Orthodoxy is, is basically straight doctrine. It's doctrine that is in line with truth. And so to be ortho-walking means you are walking in a straight line with the gospel. It's suggesting that there are things that are in line with the gospel and things that are out of line with the gospel. And that means that then the gospel has implications for every single aspect of life. All of life is us trying to get ourselves aligned with the good news about Jesus again. We're constantly falling into misalignment, you know, like if you've got a a car and it's it's out of alignment, it doesn't just kind of get back into alignment, you know? You got to take it to the shop. They hoist it up on the thing. They take all the wheels off, put them on the spinny thing, figure out the problem, put them back on, set it down. And now you're aligned again. And then it happens again. You know, that's life. We're constantly needing to bring ourselves back in alignment with the gospel. Our relationships, our friendships, our marriage, parenting, or dating, our work, our career plans, our our expenses, our savings, our contribution to society, our care for the poor and hurting. We all need to be continually realigned with the gospel. That's why generally all of Paul's letters follow this pattern of of gospel belief and then gospel action. And Galatians is the same. It's because the truth about God and the truth about us in the gospel is what leads to changed lives that then live in line with the gospel. And justification by faith is essential to this. Only a a community that has embraced justification by faith, that it's not our good works that have made us right. It's the grace of God working through us by faith that gives us right standing. We're not unified by our culture, by our politics, by our good behavior. We're united because Jesus' life 
has been transferred to us. This is the only thing that can produce a loving, unified community. We read early in chapter 3, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile. Or chapter 5, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, which is what we've been talking about all morning. Faith expressing itself through love. See, Paul, Paul expands faith a little bit. He says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Because if it's really faith, it will be expressed through love. And it continues on, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love one another as yourself. And how easy is it for us to, to form our, our sense of identity around anything other than the beauty of the gospel. To set our identity on what we can accomplish or what we can prove, our our status or our cultural background or, or whatever it is, all of those external things can become our sense of identity. It is so much harder to live a life formed on an identity in Christ. It's so hard to have relationships that are formed and set on the example of Christ. And I'm so regularly praying that we can become a a beautiful community, a a beautifully diverse community centered on this remarkable grace of God, knowing that we have nothing on anyone else, but we are all desperately in need of Jesus's work. So wherever there's uniformity in a community, especially in the Christian community, When everybody looks the same, dresses the same, talks the same, they come from the same background, they do all the same things. It's it's one-dimensional. It's it's like, you know, TV in black and white. This week, my eight-year-old was like, Dad, when you were a kid and TV was in black and white, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me stop you right there. Like, I know I'm getting up there, but like, I'm not quite that old. You know, like TV was in color when I was a kid. So continue your sentence. He was a savage. He's like Paul. He's brutal. But see, a church of uniformity, not only is it one-dimensional, not only is it sort of colorless, but it lacks the fullness of God's image. And it's far more prone to get out of line with the gospel. Because like Peter and Barnabas, we can fall back into our old pre-Christ ways of treating other people. But a church that has a, a beautiful diversity, I mean, people from different ages, different backgrounds, different, you know, social statuses, That's a church that can more accurately reflect the image of God. It's a church that can be brought back into alignment more quickly because people can see things in different ways. And our hope is just that. It's a loving, unified community. Not uniformity, but true unity. Every now and then, when a pastor asks me about Trinity and just says, you know, what's the church like? What do you, you know, what do you tend to emphasize I tend to say spiritual formation in in community, which is kind of pastor talk, but spiritual formation in community means that we care deeply about being formed in Christ as as real disciples, followers of Christ, like not just surface level stuff, stuff, but deep inner stuff, spiritual formation, but in community, real authentic relationships. That's, That's what we're after. And I love this quote from John Tyson because he says, Spiritual formation happens in the places you are not formed. 
Discipleship happens in the places where you're not discipled. So to remain only in places where you're comfortable, you're committing to a lack of growth into spiritual immaturity. See, we often withdraw from the people and relationships and situations that are most challenging for us, but that is exactly where God wants us to be and wants to grow us. If you are unformed in your relationship to people unlike you, ask for God to form you by bringing different people into your life. If you are unformed in your patience for difficult people, here's a little community group application. Guess what? God's going to bring difficult people into your group just for you. He is that gracious to bring you somebody who's really difficult for you. You know, in those performance reviews they do at work where they tell you everything you're doing great, you're so great, here's all the things, but here's a few um, opportunities for growth, you know, especially if it's one of those millennial companies, it's like, everything's great, everything's awesome, opportunities for growth, but really you're great, it's like an affirmation sandwich. (laughs) What difficult people are, people that are unlike you, they're opportunities for growth. And you know what you are for other people? You're an opportunity for growth. Like we're, I think of premarital counseling. My wife and I are doing premarital counseling for six couples in this church right now. We love it. One of our goals in premarital counseling is for people to understand I'm a difficult person to be married to. Nobody gets that yet in like premarital counseling, but you get a few years in, hopefully as Christ softens you, you realize, okay, I'm a difficult person to be married to. It's not hard to see the difficult things in the other person, but when you can realize, I can see specifically and exactly how I'm difficult to be married to. That that brings so much more compassion into your marriage. And in the same way, we can say in the community, I am an imperfect person. I am a difficult person to be around. I would be difficult to be in community group with. Sometimes I think of our own leadership team and I'm like, man, they've got a difficult pastor. And I, I know some of the ways in which I'm difficult, but not all of them, like, when we have a sense of how we're difficult, it helps us remember how much we need the grace of Christ, how much we need to be constantly realigned and other people help us to get there. We can't use other people to get something from them, to, to get ahead, to, to advance by their help, but we are here for one another's spiritual formation, especially in the unformed places. And this is my my heart for us as a church. It's not going to be for everybody. It's, you know, it's it's deeper. You know, we're we're doing gritty kind of internal work all the time. But I want it to be for anyone and everyone who's committed to being formed in the unformed places of their lives. And so if somebody comes to church and they're sitting alone, That's a person we want to surround with love and invite to come sit with us. If there's somebody that's unlike you in some way, that's an opportunity for you to build relationship with them and get to know their perspective and and become more mature and more whole in your following of Christ. We need one another and we need the gospel to bring us unity. This is the biblical vision for unity. It's, It's disunity and then internal change by the gospel, and then unity. So there's no other way. There's no disunity to unity without that 
internal work of the gospel. You can't fake it. You can't, you can't do it by your own strength. You need the power of the gospel working in the deep places of your heart. Now, I thank God that we have such wonderful unity in this congregation. I mean, we really, really do. By far, no question, the most unified, loving, beautiful community I've ever been a part of. And we survived like COVID and certain presidencies that were difficult. Feels like we could, we could do anything, but we have to recognize like challenges are coming. We're, we're growing. We have a real enemy who opposes us and especially opposes our unity. And so for the call to, to us is to hold tight to the gospel humbly serve one another in love. Make oneness in Christ our goal. Amen? Amen. This morning, we're going to come to the table and we have an immediate opportunity to put into practice what we've been talking about. Communion is significant because it draws all of us together around one table, one bit of bread, wine, and juice together. I mean, it's a really small meal. I know it's like three calories. But just think of the significance. Think of all of us and where we've come from in life and our different backgrounds and our different perspectives. And yet in this moment, we are all going to take the body of Christ and the blood of Christ together. Because we need his life flowing through us. We need that sacrifice in our place. This is an opportunity for us to practice and demonstrate the unity that we have in him. It was on the night before his death, Jesus took the bread and when he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. The same way he took a cup of wine and said, this cup represents the new covenant, which is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink. Every time we gather around this table, we're proclaiming the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done for us. During this time, we're also providing prayer in the back. We have leaders that will be ready to pray with you. If the Lord has set something on your heart, maybe you've just thought about it throughout the week that you're heavy, carrying a heavy burden. I want to encourage you, this is a time before you even leave this room to seek prayer from one of the leaders. And during this time, you can also get up, go to the back, pick up the bread and the wine or juice, bring it back to your seat. The last thing I'll say is that if you're If you're not a Christian or you're not sure where you stand in relation to Christ, I want to encourage you to wait on this meal because of everything that it means to us, everything that it represents for us, we want to ask you to wait. And instead, if you feel God stirring, I mean, if you're here, it's because God is stirring. And so consider going to the back and praying with somebody about what that looks like in your life. You can also talk to one of the leaders afterwards if you'd like. But for all of us who are in Christ, trusting in him, whether you're a member of this church or anywhere else, we want to come to the the table together. All who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come and feast. Let's pray.